bum bum bottom 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 You are now in session with the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast. I'm Lisa Gullickson. I'm Brad Gullickson. And each month we evaluate a different iconic romance within the four-color realm. But in this episode, we're caught between the opposing forces of Halo and Horn, which has backed us right up into our creator corner with Scott Snyder to discuss his insanely epic Best Jacket Press collaboration with Comixology. Guys, what is even happening? Uh, I do not know, <laughs> Lisa. This is absolutely insane, to use your word, insane. Uh, what a thrill to have Scott Snyder joining us for this episode. And what a great episode to have it on, right? Because we're recording this the day before Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving Eve. Thanksgiving Eve. We have so much to be thankful for. On our Twitter feed, we put out this call asking you, what is the best Thanksgiving comic? And by that, I meant... What is the comic that you are most thankful for? And we used an image from Dan Slott and Michael Allred's Silver Surfer run because I think that is the comic that epitomizes everything we do on this podcast. And it was actually the inspiration for launching this podcast, which, by the way, was three years ago this December. That Oh, I had not done that math, but that is absolutely true. Every once in a while, there is just like a piece of art that fits in like the perfect little hole in your yes. heart where you go like, oh my goodness, I didn't know that there is something in me that wants to express this vibe, yes. this message, this worldview. I think about that manga panel where the guy finds the human-shaped hole in the cliff and he's like, this hole was made for me. Oh, yeah. And um, I think when you find that piece of art and you celebrate it, Good things just kind of happen. And I don't think that it it necessarily has to be like a woo-woo spiritual thing. Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, when you... Open yourself? Mm, when you express yourself specifically, mm -hmm. like, and, and that's like a really hard thing to do. Mm -hmm. But when you find something where you go like, this, this thing might be me, I think that um, other people latch on to that and they want to be part of that, like mm, celebrating of that authenticity. So from us finding that comic, I did my Don Greenwood cosplay. I got that photo with that complete stranger dressed as Silver Surfer or undressed as Silver Surfer, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. And then I was in issue 200 of the run that I love so much. And we started talking about relationships in comics and, and relating those relationships back to us, which made us want to start this podcast, right. which made this moment possible where we are celebrating fandom with you guys, the listeners. And it just feels so special because it comes from this, like, I don't know, like vulnerable so us kind of place. but and, and, and a specific place. So really, like the Silver Surfer, Dan Slott and Mike Allred's Silver Surfer is why we're talking on this podcast right now. And to bring it back full circle to that tweet asking you guys, 
what is the best Thanksgiving comic, the comic that you're most thankful for. I've been so thankful to see all of your responses Mm. because they have been so varied and eclectic. We get stuff like All-Star Superman. We get stuff like Bone. We get stuff like Power Pack. Adam Reck today uh, shared that. And that starts a conversation. You get to really connect with all of your friends through comic books, and you get to see how everyone reacts differently to these very specific stories. And when you like consider that power pack issue that Adam tweeted out this morning, you it, now you have a deeper connection to it through Adam, and so you start to look at that comic differently through your relationship with your friend, right? And that's such a gift. And so this being the Thanksgiving episode, I think what I really want to say is the thing that I'm most thankful for in 2021 is comic book couples counseling and the community that has risen around it. We just love and appreciate you guys so much. And I think about something that came up in our conversation with Scott Snyder, which you guys are about to hear, but like human beings evolutionary advantage is our stories. We come up with something that is imaginary, that is a flight of fancy. We hold it up and we say, look at this thing that doesn't exist. And suddenly we're all closer because of it. It's yeah. wild. Yeah, it, it is wild. So uh, one last time, thank you to you listening to this podcast. Thank you to you for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. The last batch of episodes have done so well for us. Our Black Canary Green Arrow episodes have been phenomenal. Who would have thought that that Justice League of America episode would be our most popular session in 2021? And it's just unbelievably heartwarming to see the response that they get from you. So thank you. Yes. And because of you, we catch the attention of Comixology and Scott Snyder, and we get to have a conversation like the one you're about to hear. I mean, guys, Scott Snyder is you know, obviously one of our favorite writers out there. Uh, Let's think about it. Court of Owls, Black Mirror, Justice League of America, Swamp Thing, Dark Knight's Metal, Witches, uh, The Wake. Like, he's made so many comics that we have devoured and obsessed over. And to finally have him on the show to talk about these comicsology books that he's putting out, which feels like him at the height of his game. We are spoiled. We are completely spoiled. And then the morning of the interview, I just down six issues of this comicsology goodness, and we have demons in particular hit me, like in that kind of super specific, has this been the thing that has been missing from my life? way. And then all of a sudden I am beside myself nervous. (laughs) I was literally shaking before we were doing this interview with anxiety of going like, there is not time. There is not time for all of the questions that I want to ask. And I'm sure the more I live with these stories, the more in me is going to bubble up and want to express itself. It's just crazy. Yeah. And so, you know, Lisa's very nervous and we get on the Zencaster phone with Scott to talk about these books. Right. And clearly he is also very excited about what he is doing. And originally this introduction was going to be us talking about these eight titles that he has going on with Comixology. But 
after our first question, Scott goes into like a very detailed description of all of these titles and we don't need to go over them now. And what I got from this long introduction to Best Jacket Press comiXology is that he is very proud of what he has done. And he's a little shocked that he was able to accomplish this as well. He's excited about what he's done and he's really excited about who he's doing it with. Yes. I get the impression that when he got this opportunity to start this line of comics, he was like, well, I'm gonna use this as an excuse to work with all of my favorite people, become closer to my friends through this collaboration, and look what we've made. So what you're going to hear is I'm going to ask a question, and he is going to go into a 12-minute introduction of these books. And what was great about that is it allowed us to get off of cloud nine and calm down a little bit. Although it does add this extra stress, right? Like while he's going into this detailed description, you're like, oh, is, is, like, are we going to lose our time? Are we gonna, like, is this taking up the oh, entire yeah. episode? Because we were going into this going like, we have 30 to 45 minutes to ask him everything that is on our hearts and minds which is panic-inducing. And, and I'm thinking about the time that uh, Paul Chadwick tweeted out our conversation with Abraham oh, no. Reisman saying like, well, this interview doesn't get good until <laughs> the halfway point. And Paul Chadwick, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that, but I understood where he was coming from. The thing about this chat is we get a great introduction to all these best jacket titles, and then we have a conversation, and it goes places I was not anticipating, and Scott is incredibly generous with his time. He spoke with us for far longer than originally scheduled. We get into Batman guys. We talk about Grant Morrison folks. This is such a fun chat, and yeah, I'm really, really proud of it. Clearly, Scott Snyder gives good interviews. Yeah. He is a pro. And I went in with this list of questions <laughs> all on a theme, and I was like, uh, if this is not what he wants to talk about, I have no idea what we're going to talk about. But he was like, sure, we can talk about that. And we talked about that for like an hour and change. Yeah, it's really great. It's really great. Uh, but we've been rambling on long enough. Let's get to this creator corner. Scott, thank you so much for joining us at Comic Book Couples Counseling. It is an absolute thrill to have you here. Oh, thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Honestly, I, I've been looking forward to it. Awesome. Uh, so here's the thing. Like, I like, I would love to talk to you during any point in your career, but I feel like <laughs> this is the moment where we've got you at like the best time. And I can't imagine what it's like for you to be launching these eight titles, uh, striking it out on your own and doing what it seems like to be anything you want. And so I guess where I wanted to start this conversation is like, where is your emotional state right now with these three titles that have kickstarted off this epic project? Oh man, that's a great question. I mean, I, I feel so relieved, honestly. Like I, I, I was so scared and nervous doing it in the first place. You know, I, I've been at DC for ten years, and um, you know, I had always planned on on taking some time off after Death Metal. And I started talking to them about it back in 2018, 2019, first to Dan and then to Marie Javins. And um, you know, they were really supportive, uh, and I got all set to do it. And I started working on the books and squirreling away 
um, pages and scripts and um, with my co-creators on uh, Clear and Night of the Ghoul were the first two, and then Canary with Dan Panosian, and then Demons with Greg. And then the pandemic hit <laughs> right after I left D.C. And uh, they essentially... Um, you know, everything, everything shut down, like image comics and shops and everywhere. And so it became this moment where a lot of us, uh, we just had to make a decision, you know, all the teams, me and, and Francis and Greg and, and everyone working on a book together. We, we just, I was ready for them to say, listen, I have to go back to Marvel or DC. I have to play it safe right now. Um, and instead everybody was like, no, I really want to continue with this. If you think, we can find a home for the books and we'll be able to get paid on the other side of it, then let's do it. Um, and so I was just so energized by that. I was like, all right, let's do it. And I, I'm going to same thing. Like, I don't want, I'm not going to take any jobs at Marvel or DC. I'm going to throw myself into this. I'll use the money that I have to pay for pages until we can find a home for the, the, the books. And the goal was always to have them at different places. And, uh, and then, uh, luckily like a couple places like image came back and were, and encouraged us to do this Kickstarter, um, because they were confident they'd be able to publish Noctera on the other side. And then I started talking to comiXology and they, um, I said to the chip there, I was like, look, the only thing that really holds me back from doing something over here is the fact that you don't have a print component. You know, if you, if you guys had digital, were about digital and print working together in some way, then I, I really consider it. And so he was saying they're just finalizing the deal with Dark Horse at that moment to have um, books that come out digitally through Comixology then come out in print. And they were looking for someone to kind of spearhead a new version of, of what people had been talking about where the books that come out in print could come out in different formats um, than just trade. You could do single issues with some. You could do variant covers. You could do book plates. You could do... Um, uh, some trades and some of the content might be different too, where in print, maybe you add some back matter that wasn't there in digital. And the whole goal was to, to do something where digital and print are confluent and kind of synergistic as opposed to competitive. And so all this happened at once. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And I spoke to all the co-creators and I said, listen, if you want to do it, wherever you want to do your books, we'll do them. Like if you want to wait and do an image, if you want to do them, um, you know, kickstart them first, whatever. And everyone kind of chose where they, where they wanted. And I think the bulk of it wound up at Comixology and it's been a, a great, a great experience. So we have, um, eight books all together and we have, um, two big waves of three and then one wave of two. Although now they're talking about taking one more book because they're excited about how things have been going for that. So we have at least kind of these three books that we're doing right now. So we're doing, we have demons. It's me and Greg Capullo co-created it. And then we have clear, uh, which is me and Francis Manipal. And then, fr uh, Francesco Francavilla and I are doing a book called night of the ghoul. And the way that it works is that one of those series comes out every Tuesday of the month. So it goes like first week, we have Demons 1 came out in October, the second week of October, Clear number 1, and then the third week of October, Night of the Ghoul number 1, and then November, now we're in it, we have Demons came out the first Tuesday, Clear came out this Tuesday, and the coming Tuesday, Night of the Ghoul number 2 comes out. So it'll keep going like that all the way through the end of these books in March when we kind of take a breather and then some of the books, depending on how they do, will come back. Some of them are set stories. And, um, although these three actually are all seasonal ongoings. And then once those are done in the spring and they'll come out at that time in print, they'll start coming out in print. If they're single issue or they'll come out in trade from dark horse. 
And we'll start the second wave of books, which will be Barnstormers with uh, Tula Lote. It's like a historical um, fiction book about a pilot who crashes into a wedding and runs away with the bride and <laughs> have all kinds of deadly adventures together. It's pretty fun. And uh, Or uh, Canary, which is this super dark, twisted Western I'm doing with Dan Panosian that we've been working on a long time. And um, Dudley Dotson and the Forever Machine, which is a YA influence book with Jamal Igel and Chris Sotomayor coloring. And then the third wave, which will come out like six months after that, is Duck and Cover, um, which is like a manga influence book with Raphael Albuquerque of American Vampire that imagines like a post-apocalyptic 1950s future where there was a nuclear exchange between Russia and the United States in 1956 and the kids that hid under their desks here miraculously survived. Um, so it's all about like why that happened and why the desks actually protected them and what they do in this new world that's all blasted apart. And um, Book of Evil, which is the last but probably for me the darkest and, and mm. easily one of the most personal, which is about a world – it's about a future. I've been working on it a long time. Um, it's mostly prose with spot illustrations from Jock. And it's about a future uh, where starting tomorrow, imagine like 90 plus percent of the world's population are born sociopaths. And um, it takes place about 20 years after that. And it, you don't present one way or another whether you're kind of have this vestigial conscience and empathy or you're like everybody else and you're a sociopath until you're about 14 when you hit adolescence or you go through adolescence. So it's about ki the kids are kept in this slum called the cradle and it's about these, these five kids that are friends and they decide to run away before the transformation happens to them, assuming it will and find this place they heard about that where maybe they can be staved off. And so it's kind of like stand by me, but in like a, a super R-rated, terrifying yeah. world. Um, so yeah, those are the books. Those are that, that's the whole line. So I, the first three we have coming out now, like We Have Demons, is the big marquee kind of crazy um, Saturday morning cartoon, but R-rated romp with uh, Greg Capullo, who you know worked on Batman and Metal and Last Night on Earth with me, and uh, and it's about a girl who discovers that her um, father isn't just this pastor in this sleepy town, but is actually part of a demon hunting group um, that used to have thousands of members around the globe and now only has nine because the material they hunt demons with has been winnowed down to just nine blades. And um, he, he and his partner who she discovers is like a semi demon. Who's this huge hulking dude that looks a lot like Greg suspiciously. Um, uh, you were like the, the dream team of, of demon slang. And now more and more of the material, uh, that makes people demons has been hitting the earth. Hence all those weird UFO videos. And the problem is getting bigger and bigger. And she has to decide, um, what she wants to do, whether to join this losing battle or, uh, kind of abandon it altogether. And so it's a big, it's a book about faith and about wanting to instill a sense of hope and faith and conviction in your kids, even as things become darker and darker a lot of the time. So it's, I love the book dearly and I've been thinking about it for years, but it's also the one that's like deep fried in this kind of burrito of action and mayhem and blood and gore and that. So that's that one. And then clear. The second one is, um, a sci-fi book. That's like a noir. Also, it takes place in a near future where we connect to the internet neurologically. And, uh, the big thing that everybody does is to skin the world, however they feel, so, um, like to use filters. So if you decide you want to look out and see manga sort of, uh, 
filtered world, everything looks like that or 1930s cartoons or porn or zombie apocalypse, or you pay more to have the, the U S have a different history or whatever, whatever you want the world to look like, it looks like, even though the superstructure is still there. And it's a murder mystery that takes place in this world where the detective always keeps his setting on clear, which is supposed to allow you to see the world as it is. Um, so it's a, a totally different kind of book. And the thing I'd stress about him, sorry, I'm like, I, I feel no, like I'm just like, you're, you're doing, we don't need to okay. introduce him in the intro now. So like, <laughs> you're, you're giving it all out there and then we're going to jump in because we've got specific questions we want to tackle about those three in particular. Let's do it. Yeah. I'll finish the, the, okay, cool. The, well, all three of them are like really co-created in the most, I like the purest way where, you know, Greg, I was talking to Greg a couple of years ago and I was like, man, I really want, what do you want to do for our first creator own book? And he, and I, he was like, well, what, what are you thinking? And I'm like, I want to do something about faith, but you know, in a broader way that in these crazy times, it's hard to instill it in your kids. And it's like, there's more and more, more and more darkness everywhere. And it's almost like a demon plague. And he's like, well, I like demons. And I was like, we have demons. Yeah, that's it. And then just went with it and developed this whole mythology about these two elements that are the root of the book where the lightest stuff that was the first material created in the big bang, that is atomic number zero. And that's what they use in the blades that, that slay down demons and demons are essentially infected, um, organisms that are corrupted by this material. It's the last stuff made um, naturally in space and collapsing black holes that has this is a super heavy element mm-hmm. and hits the earth it much more rapidly and often than the other material. And her, her father, Lamb's father, calls these things, nicknames them Halo and Horn. So Greg loved it. I was like, Halo and Horn, let's do it, and designed it, and we built all the characters first and talked it all through. And and then with Clear, that really came from Francis staying with me and my family, his family, his his daughter and wife staying with us for a week back in 2018 and um, when they were visiting and uh, talking about things we're really afraid of for our kids. And I think both of us have this fear of this kind of algorithmic experience they have where everything they engage with like feeds them more of what they already like. And there's, there's a benefit in that. Like I like going on Spotify and getting recommendations of things that do dovetail off stuff I like, but like, you know, I also like being challenged by stuff that, I might not like and things that open, you know, open my eyes a little more, broaden my horizons. And I'm worried, I think it's just was is Francis about raising kids at a time when you're fighting this losing battle against immediate gratification and this kind of intensely subjective and insulated experience where they, they can choose to block out any information or, or cultural material they don't want at all. And it sounds easy. Like you could always do that, but not to the degree you do now where it's almost hard to get out of your bubble, you know, and and all of it. So that's where that book came from. And then the third book, night of the ghoul, that's probably had the longest gestation period. uh, Francesco and I were teasing it and tweeting it in like 2019. I know. Well, it came from back in 2016, 2017 when like, the world was like the country just felt like it was becoming so volatile and divisive politically. And, uh, you know, everybody, we were all so sort of, uh, disheartened and confused about how things were going in different ways. Everybody just was hating each other and all of it, regardless of what side anyone was on. It was just like, what is happening? I think both of us wound up going back and taking comfort in old um, classic horror movies. We were just joking about it because he's been my, these are all guys that have been close friends of mine for 10 years plus, you know, I mean, Greg, obviously Francis all the way back when he was on detective and 
we started hanging out when I went up to Toronto and visited Lemire and that stuff. And then, uh, and, um, Francesco, since we did black mirror together in 2010, you know, and, and our wives are friends and all that. So we were talking about it and joking around about how we both love classic horror horror. You know, you, you know, it just by following him, how many tributes he does to the universal monsters. And we were like, well, let's make a monster that's like a classic monster that speaks to this moment. And so the story is about a guy who's kind of like a ne'er-do-well wannabe filmmaker. And he discovers the remnants of what was supposed to be the greatest horror movie of all time called night of the ghoul, but it was destroyed in this deadly studio fire back in the forties. And so he brings the fragments of it to this rest home where he thinks the guy who made the film TF Merritt might still be alive, even though he seems to have changed his name and moved around a lot, almost as though he's running from something and he's in hospice care there dying. And so Forrest, the main character goes there with the pieces of these film, wanting to interview him to figure out what happened to the movie, to figure out what happened in the fire. And, uh, it begins this really terrifying kind of spiraling night, um, night of the ghoul, like in this, in this creepy rest home where everything starts to get more and more, um, nefarious. And then that is intercut with the original film fragments that Francesco is drawing in black and white. So it's almost like a double helix story where you have the narrative that is the original film, and then you have the narrative that's taking place in the present and they kind of interweave and collide. So all really, really different books. And one of the the fun things about the whole line, I didn't want to do two of the same kind of book anywhere along the lines. I wanted it all to be, each thing to be like really different than the next so that yeah. I could say like, I'm doing the thing that I preach to the students in the class that I'm doing and staying honest, which is you have to be the most exciting writer to yourself. You know, it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing or you can't think about anyone else. It has to be like, what, what would push you to a zone that, you know, that elevates your your craft. Like even if it's risky and, and it might be a little different for you. So that's why I wanted this to be like, just no two books the same, everything, things you might not have seen before, all of it on our own terms. So so I don't know if it's like the two-thirds of a pot of coffee I drank this morning or the fact that I mainlined six issues, the first two issues of We Have Demons, Clear, and Night of the Ghoul this morning. But to me, these three titles are very strongly thematically linked, and they're all mm-hmm. about... Um, metaphor and art and and do these things draw us closer to the capital T truth? Are they or are they something that separate us from the capital T truth? And I'm I'm wondering, is this overarching theme something that's intentional between these three titles? Or is it just that this is something that's very much on your mind and therefore you are expressing it in your art. You dropped out for one second when you said metaphor. Uh, and then it, you came back when you said you were asking if what the theme, if this is a theme, I missed the the meat of the question there. I missed for a second. Okay. I'm really oh, sorry. Uh, that's okay. Silent, like just a minute. That's okay. So um, the relationship between metaphor in art, it either it either points us towards truth with a capital T, or it separates us from truth with a capital T. Like that's what I feel like these three titles are really about. And I'm just wondering, is that thematic link between these three titles intentional? 
Well, I think, you know, if you look at my work, that's a great question. Also, Lisa, thank you. But the, uh, you know, if you look at things that I've done over the years, I, I'm, I'm always like mining a certain vine, a vein, I mean, in certain, um, at different phases. So I really do try and follow the advice I give students in the class also about writing your own favorite story and the things that you're passionate about at that moment. And so if you look kind of cross, if you take a cross section of work that I was doing for different companies at any one time, you'll find really similar themes. Like for example, when we were doing, um, uh, death of the family, I was doing witches starting, you know, the plotting for witches. Those, those books are very much about parenthood and fear of parenthood. Death of the family being one where Joker is saying, um, you don't, you don't really want to be a father. You want to go back to being, you know, the way you were when you were young with me and you, and which is being, you know, openly about the, the terrors of parenthood and being vulnerable to, to the child in ways that you didn't expect. Um, and then like on the other end of the spectrum, when we were doing, um, uh, death metal and, or when I was doing like, let's say a better example is probably when we were doing, um, Batman who laughs and I was doing last night and those things to me both are about, you know, human nature and the idea that instead that, that goodness is a fallacy and altruism and collectivism are all just, um, worthless pursuits because ultimately what makes us special is our capacity for evil and we should just admit it and just sort of give up, you know, in that way. It's what Lex Luthor mm-hmm. says in, in, in last night on earth. And it's what Batman who laughs says in a different way by celebrating this kind of predatory alpha, uh, apex predator kind of, um, nature of his. And so I, I really do try and like look at something through different angles and use the stories as ways of exploring something that's really on my mind. So it's a hundred percent what you said in the way that, I've been thinking a lot about ways it's, it's almost like, like you're saying about truth, but to me, it's almost right and wrong. Also, you know, it's Mm -hmm. the idea of, it's the idea of, 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 of creating things and ways that don't separate us from each other, but bring us closer and force us into a space that sort of, you have to wrestle with the things you don't want to look at you know, in that way. So, you know, in demons, it's very much this kind of thing that's growing that you can ignore or not, but it's happening. And, you know, to dive in and to be a part of it is to suddenly face all of the things that you don't like about yourself and all the reasons why it might be happening. Um, and similarly, like clear, obvious, you know, the things are obvious on the surface. It's like what Dunes really wants, the main character is for people to stop living in these silos of their own creation and instead, uh, turn it off and, and look at the world for what it is and face these kind of systemic and entrenched problems. And, you know, in night of the ghoul, the ghouls, there's a, there's a group of people called order of the fly that like worship the ghoul Mm -hmm. and issue three really brings them out. And the idea is that they believe wholeheartedly that the ghoul is a good thing because civilizations become, myopic and self-interested and egotistical and just too complicated. And at that point, the ghoul, something like a plague is needed to just remind us that it's about survival and it's not about, 
you know, the ways in which your life is so important. It's about the lives of, of the people that you influence and your next generation and all of that stuff. So there's a kind of argument about why the ghoul isn't this terrible thing from people that are uh, like super scary, awful people in the book. Mm-hmm. But all of it circles around some of those things that you were talking about, about the idea of the pursuit of truth through art, the idea of the pursuit of, um, of, uh, of, of getting to something that matters, you know, and not dodging it, like looking at things that you don't want to look at and wrestling with them and dealing with them as opposed to trying to create a reality that blocks them out for yourself somehow, you know? And that's what very much in ghoul, that's what you start to realize, you know, uh, um, Forrest has done in his own life. Like he, he kind of, he's lived in a world where he thinks that he's, he, you lie to yourself, you know, he's doing Mm -hmm. something, that he says I'm doing for my kid because I want him to be proud of me and make something of myself by being the guy who discovered this film and, you know, and, and in part of this big story about it, but he's really just doing it for himself. You know, he's, he's missed out on a lot of his kid's life. And similarly in, uh, in clear, you know, Dunes, as much as he says he wants everybody to kind of come off the subjectivity kind of, level with everything once he starts to understand what that would mean and how ugly the world is he has second thoughts about that too so and then demons you know she has to look at the hard questions of well faith is not something that's just faith in god or faith in you know any one god or in any stories from any text it's a bigger thing it's about standing in an old church or a temple or in a place of, and realizing that you're connected to other people that stood there hoping that there's something more believing that, that things are, that there's a bigger picture to the story of humanity than just what you can feel and experience in a visceral way. And there's something inspiring just in that. And for her, I think for lamb, the real, the real character arc is from someone that has to go to, to believe in things, not only that you can't see, and there's no proof for, but they're like incredibly unlikely. <laughs> you have to reach. That's why the, the, her dad always kids in the book, you have to give evil the middle finger. But his reasoning is that the middle finger is the longest finger on the hand is God's finger because it reaches beyond, so good. it reaches beyond what you're supposed to be able to attain. So in that way, like all of that book is about that too. So yeah, it really, it almost is kind of a maypole, you know, a lot of the stuff that the, the you know, that you were saying, Lisa, like they do cut across really similar themes. I'd like to like dig a little bit deeper into we have demons because first and foremost, as a questioning person who was raised Catholic, um, I super appreciate the Unitarians spearheading the um, war against demons, because I feel like pop culture wise, we have been bearing the brunt of demon hunting and it's been a huge responsibility. Happy to pass that along. But I, I also really appreciate that the Unitarians would be the closest to the capital T truth, considering that their faith allows room for more possibilities, like a, a little bit more of an openness? Do you feel connected to that like openness of possibilities when it comes to accessing truth? Yeah, very much. And that's why that's why I was thinking Unitarian. There's a Unitarian church right by us and they have this incredible set of festivals during the year that are incre- really inclusive and invite everybody in. 
And it's always really inspiring to see, you know, for me, I, I'm, you know, I, as I get older too, I think more and more about, about faith in different ways, I think, you know, and, and like, I love the idea of my kids growing up feeling as though a sense of wonder and humility, that's to me, and connectedness. Those three things are what faith is about, you know, in a a personal way for me. It's about feeling connected to other people that are, are reaching and aspiring to be better than just this kind of, you know, husk or shell you're in. Mm -hmm. It's about feeling tiny in the face of everything and part of a a much bigger story, you know, I think, um, that way. And, and really, yeah. I mean, do you know what I mean? So for me, it's those things like that, 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 those sets of things. So I, I definitely, I've never written a book that, that I think, and you see a little bit of it in, um, Noctera also that it's something that's on my mind, you know, the idea of, of, Really, of I think it's a lot of it has to do with kids getting to the age where they're. My oldest is fourteen, and he has hard questions about the state of the world. You know, and you're like, there are a lot of a lot of I think really frightening truths about uh, things he, his generation is going to have to face that we could have done better at between climate change and you know all, every. I mean, yeah. the, the list is a million miles long. So in that way, having faith not just in like a god, but in each other when we've let each other down so many times over generationally, and it's been such a dark period here um, in the States, I think for the last five, six years uh, is hard. It's a really weird thing to be a parent right now. And so that, you know, trying to, to find ways of making them feel inspired and spiritual and connected to something greater than the particular moment they're living in. You know, when I look at the, uh uh, what you've got going on with these eight titles. When it was first announced, I was like, oh my gosh, look, Scott Snyder, he is tackling every genre he could possibly want. And there's an excitement around the mashing of all these genres as well. But then once I start reading the comics, they're they're like your other comics. They are so much about human relationship. And I think that's why Lisa and myself respond so positively towards them because they do offer an opportunity to dig inward through these characters to explore your own feelings about all this stuff that's going on in the world. And I'm wondering for you creating this stuff, like where do you start? Do you start with, you know, having that conversation with Francesca Francavia about like, Oh, we got to create our own universal monster. And then you find the characters from there or are there cases where the characters come first uh, and the emotions and the concerns and the metaphor? Both. I, that's a great question as well. I mean, I think it happens It happens different ways. You know, I think probably the most common is it will start with something that is a, is a fear or a wonder, like something that catches my eye in the news or that kind of thing. So, for example, like um, uh, Noctera. You know, Noctera really came from thinking about, like, the it, it started before um, it started before uh, the pandemic, like thinking about it. But I wanted to do something. I read this story that was about you know it was just like a one of those like clickbait things about what if the sun stopped shining tomorrow, kind of thing. What would happen? And what if the sun went out? And it started like it just caught my eye. And and what happens after that? It's not just oh that would make a great story. It's why why does that particular thing 
stick with me? Like what, what makes it a good story for me? What is it that, why is it keeping me up? You know? So I unpack that for myself. And with Noctara, it was this creeping feeling of a darkness that settles on the earth and turns everybody unrecognizable and monstrous to each other. And it felt appropriate <laughs> for, yeah. like, it felt like that's what it felt like. I felt in, that was happening in, in 20, you know, 18, 2019, when I was coming up with that story and I wanted to do a story. So then the character comes, well, who do I want for that? You know, who's going to let me best explore this thing? If the book is about, and what it was about really like not to spoil the book in any way, but mm-hmm. On a, on a surface level, for anyone that's not reading it, it's about um, this, the sun, sunlight just stops reaching the earth tomorrow for a mysterious reason. Everything's shrouded in darkness. And it's a darkness that changes like every living organism into a monster called a shade if you don't keep artificial light on you um, for more than like 24 hours. So if you're in the dark for more than 24 hours or so, you turn into you start turning into a shade. Mm-hmm. And there's no reversing that. So uh, the main character is this woman, Val, who's grew up it, it happened when she was 13 the or a little sorry she was a little younger um uh she was nine and then or at, when it happened and uh yeah so now she's 22 um but it's 13 years into what they call the big pm when the story starts like am and pm and the idea is that uh the way she formed as a character was a couple things like first i come i come at it with all right the book is about this darkness that makes us unrecognizable to each other. And that's how things feel. Well, if that's how things feel, I want a character who's going to feel that way, that this is how things are. So then I start building her out. I feel like it feels like I'd like someone strong, strong, fiercely independent character. It feels like I, I like the idea of it being a woman here. I like the idea of a truck driver, you know, why is that? Okay. Well, keep unpacking it. Why, why, why? Like, why, why does that feel right? Okay. Well, it feels right because I want somebody who is really jaded and grew up in a, in a way that made them feel that people are who they seem to be at their worst when nobody's watching, when the lights are out. Okay. Well then what if I make her someone who actually grew up in the dark? That feels right. Was well, there a way that she could have been blind, you know, or had sort of really terrible, um, like uh, legal blindness, at least as a kid. Yes, there is. Okay, great. Well, then that that makes sense. And, and kids were cruel to her, you know, in that time. Okay, well, I'm starting to get her. So it goes like that because the point of the book, what I try and do is like think about what's her, what's the character arc, right? So if the first, it's like something catches your eye, and then it's unpack that. What does it mean to you? Why is that exciting? Well, it's exciting to me because it feels like this moment. But what's my solution to that? What's the character arc? I feel as though the same thing we were saying earlier, like it's about young people finding a way to be better than us. And the metaphor for that in that book is bringing a light here. That's even more powerful and and better than sunlight was before. So the whole quest in the book for the first three arcs is them realizing that you can't just bring back sunlight. It won't work. You have to bring something even better here. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how that, you know, it's a corollary for the way I feel about what I hope my kids will do is be better than us. So Val's arc has to be something where she goes from a place of absolute skepticism to that. And so that's how I build, that's how I kind of get the basic architecture. Mm -hmm. And then I start building it out. Well, you know, it feels like who she's got to have somebody hopeful close to her a little bit. Well, I feel like she needs, you know, somebody, maybe like a brother. All right. But you know, what if it's somebody who's more like she's adopted him as a brother? Well, what if they're adopted? Okay. Yeah. That feels right. You know that. And by the way, all this is happening with Tony on that book, these conversations. And so he infuses it with all kinds of stuff like, 
his family is um, Mexican American and he wanted to bring some sort of cultural aspects of his background to her. And he also has daughters and he wanted to bring in some of the things that he sees his daughters going through with her. And so I was like, let's do it. So it's that, that's kind of the process. You know what I mean? So I do the same thing on everything. And other times, like, you know, other times it'll start with a character, like usually horror stories start with a character, like a villain for some reason. I think it's some attracted to things that scare me, but like Batman who laughs, that character sprung to life, like full, fully formed in my head before, before this, there was a story. I was just, I was sick of, I think it came from like the idea that I was sick of villains, even the Joker who I adore and love writing always functioning in relation to Batman. Like Mm -hmm. they are trying to do something that usually to prove something to Batman or Batman exists as a force in their head that they are thinking about in some way or other. And I wanted a character that felt more like today where he does not give a shit about anybody but himself. He doesn't care about Batman. He only cares about being the Megalodon in the water and nothing, nothing matters to him except taking everybody down that poses a threat. You know, Batman means nothing to him and he's as smart and as strong and as, and I was like, that's the guy. Mm. You know, so it was that it was like that character just popped into my head as a product of that moment. <laughs> I think you to, always in your work, you always seem to be like warning the reader about like, don't put all of your eggs into like one reality basket because by having like, you know, having like one perspective, that's how you have your world turned upside down. And it, and it makes me think about, um, in clear, every single person has connected into the internet. And in doing so, they have put all of their eggs in, you know, the humanity basket. Now the, the DOC, the Department of Connectedness, is now the um, gatekeeper of your reality. And um, at the center of this uh, department of connectivity, Sam Dune sees, you know, the cherry tree, George Washington's cherry tree, this symbol of truth, and Union telling him, like, well, see, it's our job to demarcate, like, what is the cherry tree? And what is not the cherry tree? And we exist so that we guard that boundary between, like, you know, the veil and Mm -hmm. reality, you know? But, like, Sam, even Sam, who is financially invested in reality, is still depending on, you know, this, uh, the Department of Connectedness delivering that to him, you know? Right. So yeah, exactly. And so like, I'm wondering if like, as an artist, it's part of your responsibility to repeatedly point to that demarcation line of fantasy and truth. I mean, I think so in the way that for me, it's, it's also a lot about, it's a lot about ego and humility. Mm-hmm. Like those things, I feel as though the thing that the most, I mean, I really feel like everything in our, we, like Americans are, are particular also. And I'm, I'm super fascinated by this stuff, you know, by 
American history and Americana and what makes us, what makes us who we are in terms of their cultural identity and imagination. And so it's a lot of, a lot of the books that I do sort of circle back to this stuff. But one of the things that I feel like is really sort of interesting is just how young we are and the way that everything is kind of built for you in a way that doesn't hum. It's very hard to be humbled here. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Because nothing is more than a couple hundred years old. Right. <laughs> I mean, by there is plenty that's more than a couple hundred years old from other cultures and and naturally as well. But I mean, from from the birth of this nation that's considered American as part of the United States, there's nothing you know um, that uh, built. You know, everything is everything is two hundred two hundred fifty years old plus. Um, but again, there are plenty of markers from indigenous cultures and everything like that. So I didn't mean to, 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 um, no, but from a colonialization point of view, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. You, the United States is also a metaphor. Like it's just something we've all bought into as an idea. Well, it's all fiction. I mean, and the idea is like those two things I'll let me, cause I, th- that's a great point too. Like the, what I'm saying is I feel as though like I live out, you know, I, I used to grow up, I grew up in New York city. A lot of things that I loved about living in the city, we lived downtown. We used to go down to the South Street Seaport around some of the oldest neighborhoods in the city by Wall Street and me and other kids, you know what I mean, and mess around. And even then you felt, in a small way at least, the genealogy of the city, like that there were many generations that lived and walked in these streets that were cobblestone streets and made their lives. And there was a sense of humility that comes from that, like naturally from being around places that are lived in and older than you. And where I live now is much more, I think, a common experience that we live out in the, pretty much out in the woods, but the town near us, you know, or near us, there's a lot of chains, there's a lot of malls, there's a lot of fast food stuff. And you're, that's, so much of the American experience I feel like is living in and inhabiting things that are built for you. And it, it reinforces this sense of self-importance and, you know, a reality that's insulated from history or rea- insulated from um, outside challenge in some way or a more global perspective that, you know, that to me is, is different than when you're in a, in a place or a city that has 500 years of history or something mm-hmm. and you feel it. You know, I think there's, there's so many places and so many ways of finding that here, but it's not as easy. You know what I mean? Or it's not as, it's not as readily yeah. available, but learning about cultures before also just the natural landscape as well. Like for me, like <laughs> going out and seeing the red rock, going out and seeing, you know, the landscape that, that makes you feel tiny, but feeling tiny to me, it's the best I ever feel is when I feel, when I feel unimportant, you know, when you feel like a tiny little thing, that's a, like a point in a vast constellation of, of, of other people, but part of something, but a tiny part, you'll never understand that. Mm-hmm. Like to me, it's almost like I had a moment when my oldest son was very young, when he was like one and change. And I remember it was like the most sort of religious I felt where I was literally staring at him and he was, he was looking at the cat and the cat was like, you know, just batting around a thing. And I was like, man, this kid is so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like this kid, I could not explain that. I'd have just, I like the cat. The cat is at one level of like dumb where the cat doesn't understand anything beyond, you know, but the kid who is me, like is literally a human being. 
I could not explain that is a cat. We are in New York. We are in a country. We are in on a planet. And that's the human brain. And I remember thinking like, you know, you treat, you look at everything in this, this, this kind of, this, this scale where we think of ourselves as so smart and, you know, and that we comprehend so much and all of this, but what's to say that we're not exactly like that child to Mm -hmm. the truth of what's happening around us. It's the same brain that just hasn't developed as much as this. So it gave me this really weird sense of wonder where I was like, well, you know, what if what's really happening or what really exists in some cosmic or spiritual way is like math to the cat or the internet to this baby child of mine. And there's no way that I can, I can understand it. I can just kind of revere it and feel connected to it and a small part of it in that way. For me, that's what worked and felt like, well, then you know what? I feel at once free because I don't feel like I have to have answers, but I also feel connected because it gives me a sense of constant wonder to say, well, something around me is happening. I don't understand. And that makes me feel small and united with the rest of the sort of the world and the ecology and and people and all of it. Like, I think the worst thing that happens is when you feel, start to feel self-important, you know, Mm -hmm. or you start to feel your life is your reality. The thing you're building is important at the expense of other things and people and that, you know, and that I think that's like the weirdest, biggest conflict in a lot of ways right now is this battle between living in the moment and being absolutely focused on your needs, your desires, your, you know, your um, experience and seeing yourself as part of a much larger story and, and, a, and, and sacrificing things and, and, and being part of a collective trying to get through things like it's yeah. what you see everywhere right now. I feel like is, you know, do I care about the tiny things that, that, um, you know, are, are part of my life and that's it. And uh, you know what? Fuck everybody else. Like, this is what I want for, or do you think like there's some hard choices or conversations to have about things that need to get better that are systemic yeah. problems and it'll take me out of my comfort zone and make me not want to have, you know, but I, but th- that's the better way through. And that feeling of being part of something larger than yourself or being the largest thing around to me is the battle that's, you know, you see in everybody, but I think is, is particularly acute here because the country's so young, everything is built for you. There's also built into our whole culture, this sense of, you know, independent, this like very, this, this wonderful kind of progressive, like, uh, empirical, like, you know, inventing new things and being the best and never listening to the rules and being that, that kind of, but it also backfires when it's like, make your own reality and, and whatever you believe is true and that, and that back and forth, I think of being like absolutely sure of that, what you believe and what you're wrapping around yourself. And again, I think there's so many mechanisms now, like we were saying with clear with the kids that just insulate you from conversations outside your comfort zone that are, are, are making people feel self-important and, and detaching them from a collective sort of center or reality. And then the other side of it being what I really believe faith and religion and like what experience should be, which is feeling like a tiny part of something bigger than yourself, a giant human story. It's a mystery and a wonder, you know, that, so that's what I, I keep coming back to those things in the books, especially lately, mm-hmm. you know, I think with yeah. it, 
So I don't know. Sorry to get so well, abstract. Well, we're gonna, we're well, gonna this you- is our this is our happy place right now. Like, um, e- like one thing that also unites all three of these titles is um, like each second issue ends with like. Uh, a betrayal by the narrators and just like this idea of like, oh, guess what? The reality you've been existing in in this narrative isn't even connected to the capital T truth. And a lot of what you write about reminds me a lot about a, of a quote from Richard Rohr. Are you a Richard Rohr guy? Do you know him? I know, I know of Richard Rohr, but I haven't, no, I haven't really read a lot. Well, he has this concept of like, uh, the quote, I don't remember what the exact quote is, but it's the idea of like, metaphor is the language of religion because metaphor is the only thing that can get you in estimation, like close to the truth. And mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering, like in your experience as a consumer of art, like, do you, do you feel like stories in your life have been part of like diviners of truth for you and oh, how sure do, yeah, yeah. Uh, no 100 percent. yeah what are what are some of the stories that have created this worldview for you well i think i mean there are books that i it took me a while to unpack why they mattered so much to me like frankenstein for example it's yeah. like my favorite book of all time and i have like a couple my wife got me a, a new like a a classic edition of it for my birthday this year. So I'm looking at it right now, but comics as well. There's so many comics, you know, that, that, that did that for me coming up, I think from the early, like a lot of it horror, you know, the swamp thing, all of it. And, and the weird thing about him and is, and Batman. But the, the reason is because I, I genuinely feel like the, like the, like you're saying, the closest thing to truth lies in, connecting with a story, you know, that, that all of it is fictions, like, you know, the idea that, but believing in fiction is the best and worst thing for us. Like it's the thing that allows us literally to be the dominant species on the planet is our belief in fiction because you can believe in an ideal that allows your tribe to think of yourselves as a, as a team, a collective where other animals can't do that. Other species of men couldn't do that, you know, like, pre homo sapien like the whole idea is that we can believe in fantastic things like we are a family you know that's a concept or we are all a country that's a concept or you know all of it like those are all fictions that bind us money everything like everything that we believe in is some kind of fiction you know but they're they make up the the they make up who we are like that's that's to, it's the, it's the, like, it's, it's like, if you saw the matrix, it's all just stories, you know, of, of the way that we think about ourselves, the way we think of our culture, the way we think of the country, all of it, you know, but it's, it's binding. And I think that, you know, it's also like you're saying, I think thinking of metaphor being the closest thing to finding a spiritual truth is fascinating. I like agree with that, you know, and for me, stories are the things that teach me who I want to be you know, and what I, what they allow me to explore my deepest fears in ways that are truer than I could in real life. Honestly, like when I write something really confessional, like witches going through the process of doing it fictionally allows me to be much more truthful and raw about the emotional and psychological, uh, 
nightmares of, of things than I could otherwise, you know, and same writing a story like death metal through wonder woman's point of view allows me to be much more aspirational and hopeful in a true way. The things I really hope will happen, you know, like really hope are true about the industry, but also about the way people start thinking about life in general is baked into that crazy event. You know that, whereas if I was talking about it in, a f- like factual way or we were we were discussing it and i had to to tell you sort of the 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 truth in a in a way that wasn't translated into into fiction i don't think it would be as as real or as close yeah. to as close to um the heart that way you know sometimes for me at least yeah fiction yeah. those stories and those characters and all of it are the way that you can get closest to truth uh, you know, Scott, we're going to let you go here in a second. Uh, but before we do, I just wanted to like go back to something you said at the very beginning of this conversation about how you were very nervous going into this massive project, this huge collaboration. And, you know, it's humbling to me to know that Scott Snyder uh, can be nervous going into something um, because you have accomplished so much within this industry. But having now created this thing, and it's it's still coming out, <laughs> um, are you feeling optimistic in a way that you haven't been in a while in regards to your own talent, but also with the industry itself and the readership? Yeah, I mean, I there are a lot. There's a lot I'm really optimistic about. I mean, I, for, on a personal level, I'm feeling so grateful and relieved, honestly, that. These are books that, like I said, these were not like quick books. These are books that have been going around or have been being built by me and the co-creators for a long time and are still being like, you know, Duck and Cover is an idea that Raphael and I discussed on American Vampire and have been tinkering with for years. But we'll start it in earnest in January for the following year, you know. So they they have a long gestation period in their passion projects. They're not like hey, here's a quick idea. Let's do it so it can be a Netflix thing or that kind of thing at all. Like they're mm. the opposite of that. So, and I, I'm, that I'm, I really hope shows on the page because it's, it's a, you know, that's just the truth. It does. Um, but thank you. But so I'm feeling really relieved and grateful to have the creative freedom to do this with people that I love working with that inspire me on a creative level. I've never felt as invigorated. I mean, I love working on Batman and I love working on metal and it's a special kind of thrill to be shepherding a character that means so much to so many people, but there are also so many calculations you have to do all the time, like that eat up, I was trying to do the percentage with like James Tynan the other day and with Josh Williamson, we all have different, but it's like at least like 30% of your time is dealing with, you know, the logistics of working on a character like that, where part of it is um, figuring out where the character is across the line, figuring out like where fans are with the character, figuring out where they are with you, figuring out what the uh, editors want. And do you want the same thing? And if not, how to get what you want and figuring out um, there's everything like uh, there's just a million calculations to do. I think some people don't do any of them and that's fine, but I'm, I'm the kind of writer where if I go on Batman, like I have something I really want to do and it's all about how do I do this in the best way possible, the most true way possible how do I get it out there in the purest form? There's a lot of, there's a lot of maneuvering that has to happen for that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but sometimes internal politically with editors, sometimes just with fans being like, Hey, I'm going to 
tell you that I acknowledge the way you feel things should go. And then I'm going to go my way. So like there are a lot of, I love those kinds of, you know, that math, but the point I'm trying to make is that there's a lot that happens with superhero comics that I don't miss like that. Hmm. But, um, there's nothing, there's a special ecstatic joy of my life to get to work on those characters. But to do this, what I'm doing now to build new stuff with my friends and people that I've looked up to and have wanted to work with for a while from the ground up, it's just so freeing. It's so freeing and image and dark horse and comiXology have just been such great partners about letting us do what we want, you know, not, not sort of not holding anything back. They've been great in every way. So I, I like with my stuff, I hope, I mean, I like to think it's the best stuff I've done, you know, with all of the, the different things that I'm trying and all of it. So I, I really hope that, um, I hope that's the case or at least it stands with the best stuff that I've done. Um, and you know, there's so much other stuff coming too, still that, you know, reaches farther outside the comfort zone, of stuff. So I love that aspect when it comes to the industry. I mean, I'm really optimistic. I think it's a really spooky time right now. And I think everybody acknowledges that like for so many reasons, like the things are becoming more and more decentralized. You know, I think there's less in every way, like social media is more decentralized. The, the conversations that we had about comics on Twitter aren't necessarily all just happening on Twitter anymore. I think it's becoming less, less of uh, having less effect on, on the comics industry itself. I think, you know, there's the idea that also Marvel and DC are slightly less uh, decentralized in the way that they aren't as in the ring against each other in a fun way uh, with personalities helming DC and personalities helming uh, Marvel for better or worse, but in ways that made them, really um, loud and noisy kind of things in the room in comics. I think they're kind of pulling back from that um, in a lot of ways. And you see a lot more corporate, um, a lot more kind of corporate uh, influence in good and bad ways, both, I think. So there's less, I think, of a kind of arena in the direct market with Marvel and versus DC. And this is, you know, things are, and, and to top it off, like I think, the indies are rising super fast in different ways. And there are all these other ways to make comics. There's tapas, there's just doing it digitally yourself. There's kickstarting it. There's comiXology. There's, um, you know, every indie company out there and there's Substack, and there are all these other players coming in that we haven't heard about yet that you hear about only in rumors like coming in soon. And so people are the exciting. The scary thing is that nobody knows what comics is going to be, you know, and nobody knows what it is right now in a lot of ways, I think. Um, I think that the direct market uh, industry is really strong, even though people are always saying it's dying. Right. I think that it's a really good moment and you can throw a stone and not hit a great comic right now, both from Marvel and DC and from the indies. I think there's more great indie stuff coming out, especially than we've seen. And I, I like what DC and Marvel are doing in all kinds of, uh, all kinds of directions. Um, and I'm very proud of a lot of the former students and other friends I have that are working at those companies. Um, but I also think there's like, you know, so it's a great moment in that regard for the direct market, but it's also exciting in the way that it's a moment of tremendous creator empowerment because of the influence of digital and because of the streaming wars. And, you know, you can make a comic now and if it's strong, it's not unlikely that it will get optioned for something. Is that a ton of money? No, it's not like, it's not like saying, Hey, everyone makes it rich doing comics. That's believe me, nobody gets into comics to make money, 
But the idea is that there are more ways of taking your career in your own hands is my thesis is what I'm saying. As a creator, I'm optimistic in a way that isn't like, Hey, I'm optimistic about creators, but I think the direct market is going down or, Hey, I'm optimistic about it. But I think, no, I'm optimistic about all of it, even though I think that it's a scary time, but especially because I think you see more and more creators taking control of their careers and make, taking risks, having rethought things during the pandemic to make the best stuff yet and to do it in really innovative and interesting ways. You know, I think, and you're seeing fans gravitate towards more personal and connected relationships with creators through um, subscription services, through newsletters, I think through more engaged social media that isn't just Twitter conversations all the time, um, and more direct marketing campaigns where people are making books like Radiant Black, like Kyle Higgins, doing all kinds of fun gimmicks and things that make you feel like you're a part of a whole system of stuff. Like everyone's rethinking how they want to engage with their fans in ways that are true and, and fun and sincere. And I, I, I'm hugely excited by that. I think that it's going to make the industry, I really believe the industry is going to be a lot stronger as we go forward. I just think that we have to get over a few things like, yeah, like holding digital and print competitive, like feeling that subscription services and stuff are going to rob us of readership instead of grow readership, like feeling like manga and comics are competitive in some way, feeling like, you know, all of that. Like, and I think that's so I think the pandemic caused a lot of things to speed up really fast that we're going more slowly. And I think that leads to a lot of anxiety, but I do believe that it's a, I I honestly believe it's an incredibly exciting and hopeful moment in comics all around. So, you know, I don't know. That's where I am with it. What do you guys think though? Like, where are you? You like, you know, I've been reading comics for 30 years. Lisa's been reading comics for 15, almost 20 years. If you count your first time you read Sandman and Watchmen, Mm -hmm. right? And, you know, we say this all the time, like comics have never been better. And, you know, there's all these little arguments that are being had, but the medium itself is stronger than it ever has been. And I think that that's what makes people scared. Yeah. You know, like the second we um, feel growth coming on, we start being precious about the present. And the way it should be. Yeah. and, And like, well, if it changes, it'll be different. And we like how it is now. You know what I mean? Oh, totally. And I think that, you know, especially when you're on a major character, you see it right and left, like all the time where it's like, but the way I always tried to handle it with from Batman all the way through death metal was always to nod at the fans and say, like, you're doing something nuts. Like you're doing zero year, right? Which is like a new origin. You know, everybody thinks that it's going to be the alley and the pearls and they're all angry at you (laughs) for doing it. You get all kinds of hate mail and everything, you know, but I got all that stuff all the time too. Believe me, like try making commissioner Gordon Batman, see what happens, <laughs> yeah. you know, or even when we did, I mean, from the moment I started, like now everyone's like, Oh, well, black mirror, you know, whatever. But we made Jim Gordon had a psychotic son. Like I got a lot of hate mail over that. Like, so anyway, the point I'm trying to make, and I was nobody at that time is I always try and say something like I always try and acknowledge the fans by being like, okay, well, zero year, you think it's going to be this, Actually, let me start it with Batman riding up sleeveless in a post-apocalyptic Gotham on a motorcycle looking like Robin Hood. And you're like, this is the origin? You know, I want to short circuit your feelings. Be like, I know what you thought it was going to be. It's not that. Like, relax. You know, or when Gordon is Batman, it opens with him being like doing a TV interview and being like, this is the stupidest idea in the history of this city. 
you know, and I'm, I'm saying to you, like, I know that it's stupid. I know it is like, but let's have fun <laughs> and like, see where it goes, you know? And so I understand. And what I always try to, fe- to believe, and I do believe it is that comic fans are that way because they're passionate and they love these characters. And that's a good thing. But I think that that can curdle and it can be something where people get way too precious about, you know, the characters staying the same all the time. And I, I, I never for changing the core values in, in, you know, of those characters in ways, but the reason they've stayed around so long is because they are adaptable and they are like a lot of aspects of them are, are, should be able to grow and should be able to change. And that it doesn't mean that like Superman should kill people or Batman should use guns or whatever. I'm not saying that I'm just saying you should be able to be like, you know, could Batman have a family with all of the Bat characters? Why not? It might not be my version, but it could happen. Or, you know, and it did. Here he is, you know. Or could Superman have a son with Lois? No, my God, I <laughs> maybe he could. Look there, you know. Like, just try and be open-minded till you read the story. And by the yeah. way, like, that that's the thing that bugs me is, like, they're, like, I said this in my newsletter thing, but I'll, I mean this sincerely, too. Like, people always assume that if you did a character like Batman for a long time, that you're offended when someone comes along right after you and does something really different for me. And I swear this is the truth. Like the worst thing I could imagine is somebody coming along and doing the same thing as me or something similar to me on a character that I love, because the first thing I'll line up for on Batman, whether it's TV movie video game is something new that takes the character and out of love is trying to refresh it and do something you know, him and do something that invigorates young readers and fans and people all about the things that I loved about the character all over again, but in a new way. Like, so when someone comes along, like, like Grant, like Grant's run is my favorite run. It couldn't be more different than my run. Right. You know, like Tom has, I have very little in common with Tom in terms of my take on Batman, but I loved reading his run because it was so its own thing and such a different take than mine. And same with James, like, and Josh, you know, coming up now, same thing. Like that's what you want. And I wish people would try a little bit to embrace change that way and be like, you want to see the characters grow. And if something doesn't work, believe me, it's not going to stick around. Like, you know, it's like, it just, but they have to, they have to, you know, I want my kids to love Batman. I don't want the same version that I loved yeah. out there again for them. Like I want the new one, you know, like I love the Chris Nolan films, but if this new movie is like those and it's going to be boring, I don't want that. A hundred percent. You know, my favorite thing to collect are the Batman black and white statues because you've got Mignola and you've got Jiro Kawada and you've got Cliff Chang. And it just shows you like all Batman are valid. You want, you can do anything with Batman. That's the exciting thing about Batman. Oh, totally. And Grant, I remember I ran into Grant when I was first doing Court of Owls and I was like terrified of being on Batman. And he gave me this advice that stuck with me my whole career. I always think about it. We were just like at the buffet, at the hotel thing. And I bumped into him and he was like for breakfast. And he was like, listen, you've got to give your Batman a birth and a death and make him your version. And then he'll stand in the pantheon of all Batmans forever. And I was like, wow, you know, and I thought about it and I did like I did zero year as his birth and last night is his death. And I thought of those not long after he told me that in in their basic nascent versions, you know, this is who is my Batman. My Batman is this. He's about inspiring people to be brave as opposed to scaring bad guys into the shadows 
And he's about these things that I worry about for my kids and these things. And that was it. And like that, that's, that's my version. And when I return to my version anytime, I know who he is, but do I want someone else's version to be mine? Never. I want it to be theirs. That surprises me and makes me be like, wow, I didn't think about that with Batman. That's so cool. You know that like, so I don't get it. You know, obviously there's going to be things that people do with characters that you don't respond to. And that's fine. Like I just, I keep a letter about Batman year one. Did you ever see this? It's like the letter to the editor. I've seen it. Lisa has it, but I've seen it. Yeah. Where it's just like, dear DC comics, you know what I mean? I want you to know I will never read Batman again because (laughs) this is like a too far and a piece of trash. And like, it's like bleak and you know, it's, you've ruined the character and broken him forever. And it was literally Batman year one, which I, I love because I understand why at that moment it would feel that way too, but it's that it's just, you know, so I always try to DC to push that way a bit, like to do things that, you know, I think there's a veneer over them now, but when we were doing them at the time, they were, I think, you know, they were, they were, they were harder to get it through with DC and with fans. And I think maybe it looked because, we, I always tried to, I always, I never wanted to be combative with fans. That's, that's really what it was, was that it wasn't that it was nothing about doing things they wanted. It was always about saying, I am a fan too. I acknowledge what you want. Like, I know what you want, but I'm not doing that. I'm doing this. Like, but I know what you want and I love that too, but we've seen it. I'm not doing it. You know, I'm doing this, but let's have fun. It was always that move, you know? So I have a lot of love for fans and a lot of like, I, I always was very, it was the, I found it endearing a lot of the time, even when they were very angry, you know, certainly some things not, but I mean, I, I, it never bothered me that deeply when they were upset because I understand it comes from a place of love for the characters and a fear that I'm going to, you know, screw it up. But, you know, I also, I have very good fans. I'm very grateful that <laughs> I've, I, I do, I have the best fans there. They've stuck with me a long time. Not to be the person who is tying an entire conversation in a bow, but I am going to be that person. So I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but it all goes back to the idea of the halo and the horn and the idea of, well, you have to have this balance, even in Batman of reaching out for what is new and what is bigger but also that reaching in of this is my experience. This are my insecurities. This is how I feel less than. And like, you can't be a complete person without feeling the pull and the push. You know what I mean? Yeah, I agree. I mean, the, the, the hard, the hard thing, the weird trick you have to play when you're in a character like that is being like, I'm writing this as though no one is reading it because mm-hmm. it's only for, it has to be personal because the only way to make it original is to make it personal. Like that's it. Like you're sure you might come up with like a trick, a story that nobody has thought of before, but it's so difficult. It's really not like the court of owls is not a story that like is so, you know, uh, original and it's in its archetype or whatever. It's more that it's, it's a personal story and and that's what starts to make it original because the details emerge from that. It was about me taking on Bruce Wayne at a moment when I felt completely unworthy of it and was barely anybody in comics and was then found out it was going to be number one and was like completely overwhelmed and was like, well, I went back to my old neighborhood to sort of walk around because I always thought of it as like, you know, Gotham-y kind of place Hmm. and everything had changed. And it was that feeling suddenly of being like, I need to take everything I'm 
going through and feeling and can I make that into a story? And it was like, yes, because Batman, Batman thinks he knows the city and everything so well. And he's so confident, just like I felt like just as I was getting used to Gotham with Dick Grayson. (laughs) And then suddenly you start to realize you have to face the history and legacy of something so much bigger than yourself that the only way to be Batman in any respect, a good Batman is to be humble and say, I don't know Gotham. I won't know it as well as other people. I'm not going to always be its big hero. Um, and in acknowledging those things, you'll be a better Batman today. And that, that was the story and that's where it came from. And I mean, like, digging into those things, like your fear of having kids with, you know, death of the family, your fear for your kids with zero year, the things they, you see them up at night worrying about as the things Batman's facing off with. That's how you make it special and original. You know, that's how you make something I think that lasts not by being like, what do the fans want or what is going to, you know, sell a million copies or that stuff. It's really digging in and saying, what can Batman make me brave in the face of today that I'm genuinely afraid of Mm. for myself, for my kids, for the world? How can he be a hero facing off with something that keeps me up at night and really, you know, put my own vulnerabilities and fears on the page. Mm. That's, that's the only way you make something. I think that that becomes enduring is to do that. Well, Scott, you've been so generous with your time today. Thank you so much for chatting. It's been a true pleasure. Uh, oh, it's we're going to have, oh, uh, have links to everything in the show notes, but just in case people don't wander over to those links, do you want to direct them anywhere where they can continue this conversation with you online? Yeah, sure. I mean, I'm on social media still. I'm on like, you know, Twitter at Snyder1835 and I'm easy to find, but um, I'm really trying to to put more effort into my Substack. I'm doing like a newsletter that's free and it's weekly and it's all about like stuff I'm working on and my thoughts on comics and life and those things. And then if you want to do a $7 a month version of that newsletter, you also get a class with me. I'm doing once a month um, called comic writing 101 and I'm, I love it. I, you know, I used to teach, I taught for many, many years, uh, the better part of my career until it just got too hard to do at a bunch of different schools and colleges, comic writing. And then I taught it at DC through for Warner brothers through their writers workshop program. So it's something I've really missed. And so this class is like one month we'll talk about characterization. One month we'll talk about villains. One month we'll talk about three act structure. And so it's really tactile and hands-on and I do it live from my um, local comics shop, fourth world comics in Smithtown, New York. And then I archive all of it. So if you sign up, you can get all the old classes on video and audio and check them out. So that's kind of where I'm trying to put the most energy because like I was saying earlier about the ways in which I think the industry is changing and and creators are finding sort of new avenues for, to connect with fans in a real way. That's where I'm trying to do it. Cause I, I, Twitter, you know, is fun and, and that, but I feel like having a place where I can actually like explain my thoughts and see questions from fans and interact with them through the teaching and that stuff feels a lot more I don't know. Just feels a lot more organically me. Hmm. So I that's where I would go. It's best jacket. It's called our best jacket. Like O U R best, and then jacket with two T's. That's my company. Um, if you just look up best jacket Substack, it'll pop up. 
Yeah, and we'll have a link for it in the show notes. And uh, I just recently signed up for it. Yeah. So you're my first Substack. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> thanks a lot, Brad. Of course. Uh, so, Scott, uh, thanks again. This has been great. You have a wonderful day. You too. This was a pleasure. That was such a delight. <laughs> I have been glowing since this conversation. What about you, Brad? Yeah, I mean, we recorded this almost a week ago. And, I, you know, like, I, you know, you, you want your Green Arrow Black Canary episode to have its proper space. But there was a part of me that was like itching to drop this immediately. Uh, but I'm a professional. I didn't <laughs> want to rob that lovely couple of their time. And so here it is finally out in the world. Um, yeah, I'm chuffed. It feels really great. Um, I have like two things that I have in my back pocket that I want to like just close our conversation on two okay. thoughts. So one of them relates back to my first question about like all of these comics, the three that we read were on this theme and was the theme an indication of a shared universe or was it just like this is right. Scott Snyder it's what is what is on his mind um but I think it goes back to that authenticity you know conversation that we were having where it's like what makes this a shared universe is the Scott Snyderness yeah. that shines through it yes yes and and I think that that's what makes these special in a different way than his Batman comics or anything else he's he's done where he's it's just like the stained glass window is like just his psyche. Yeah, I, you know, I think we talk about on this podcast a lot, even though we tend to follow characters and we have our sessions around characters, not necessarily authors. I think personally, between the two of us, we follow authors more often than character. And I do think Having now read, you know, Night of the Ghoul, We Have Demons, and Clear, uh, if you go back and you reread Court of Owls mm -hmm. and his new 52 Batman run, which I am doing right now, mm -hmm. you can see how those stories were building to ideas that he is now executing in these Best Jacket Press comics. What makes comic books so special in the realm of literature is that they can be a collaboration on an epic scale yes. on literal, like on the generations. Yes. Like if you think about our, our conversation with Doug, Douglas Volk talking about like the entire culture is collaborating right now on what the Marvel universe can be or what the DC universe can be. And right. that is awesome. But then it is also awesome to make the collaboration very small and very tight and going like, this is just two people and two people's vision. Yeah, well, well and I, I loved the part in this chat where he was talking about writing a Batman book at the same time that Grant Morrison is <laughs> writing a Batman book and how that collaboration through the generations can also feel suffocating and terrifying. And I super respected that. And I loved that he was uh, generous enough to be vulnerable with us and say like, yeah, you know what? Um, then I decide to leave DC Comics and I'm terrified. Mm -hmm. Like doing these best jacket comics like is... Was this the right move or was this the worst move? I will never get tired of having a conversation about creating art from a place that like of insecurity and vulnerability, because to me, that is the most relatable thing on the planet. The idea of putting something out there and still feeling like, 
what if this doesn't work? Yeah, what if yeah. this is the thing that exposes me in a bad way? Yeah, yeah. Is this the best that I can do? Clearly not, but it's the best that I can do now, and that's what I have, right? Mm-hmm. I have to work with that. Um, but again, going back to another conversation we were having on a previous episode, that Samuel Beckett quote, right? Fail, fail again, fail better. That's life, man. But it is always a surprise for some reason where we find someone where we go, this person is at the pinnacle of their creativity. They have no excuse to feel at all doubtful about their talents. And they still have that thing where like, oh, I hope this is good. And that's a gift, right? To hear about Scott Snyder's vulnerability helps me with my imposter syndrome. Mm. And uh, yeah, so yeah, I like. I, I hope everyone out there really had a good time with this conversation as much as we did. Um, I think it's a truly special episode within the comic book couples counseling canon. I did start this by saying that I had two things I wanted to talk oh, about. Oh well, okay, okay, okay. I was wrapping it up. I was wrapping it up. <laughs> Let's not do that. Let's keep going. Uh, this, this maybe you don't want to talk about it onto a microphone. Let's but, find out. But reading, we have demons, and him going like. The ultimate act of faith that Cash could do was have children. Did you feel lightly trolled as a couple who (laughs) does not want to have children? I mean, Scott Snyder is a very uh, proud papa uh, Mm -hmm. of his comic books and of his actual children. And Lisa and Brad are famously, famously child-free And I don't have the parenting desire, Mm -hmm. but I respect those that do. I'm in awe of those that have it and seem to be killing it while doing it, right? Yeah, I do like the celebrating of parenthood as extraordinarily brave because you are showing faith in yourself that you can pass on the legacy of humanity to another individual. You are also showing faith in humanity to take care of this person that you're bringing into the universe. And I think that's the most important faith in that action, the one that maybe I struggle with the most. But that's not even why we don't have children. I'm just a selfish dude who loves (laughs) his life and his comics and his toys are his kids. We don't have faith in ourselves that we could (laughs) still... Still nurture our inner child while nurturing an outer child, perhaps. that's not even true because I can imagine friends saying like, oh, Brad, you, Lisa, you you can do this. And guess what? I do think if we wanted kids. We would have the raddest kids. We would have the raddest kids. I I just, it comes down to, I just don't have a desire to have children. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully our collective parents are not listening to this. Uh, You know what? My parents probably are, (laughs) and they know this. I feel like I have officially walked out too far on the tightrope of vulnerability, and I want to <laughs> I want to scurry back to the safety of solid ground. Well, that's I think we're at a good stopping point with this episode. Um, our thanks to Scott Snyder for coming on uh, a- after the conversation. He said he would love to come back. We would love to have him back. Yes, there are still so many more titles in his Best Jacket Press Comicsology collaboration that have not come out yet. So I think there will be opportunity to continue uh, this conversation at a later date. And I look forward to that. Absolutely. 
Um, next week, guys, we are going to be dropping another collaboration episode. We're doing a crossover episode with the Ten Cent Takes podcast to discuss the most epic 90s crossover event when Valiant Comics met Image Comics in Deathmate. And we've had this conversation already, and it's a really good one. It's a very strange one. Deathmate is whoa. Yeah, Mike and Jessica, super gracious hosts. Um, two silly people. Silly people are my favorite kind of people. Absolutely. And we had so much fun. Yeah, and we get into the history that brought Valiant and Image into existence. And this episode here will serve as a great springboard to our next couple session, which will be covering The Second Life of Dr. Mirage, all 18 issues of it over two episodes discussing the romance between Huen and Carmen. And I think they are a really interesting, totally functional couple. Yeah. A real oddity in drama, a functioning superhero couple. I love it. So they're going to be our December, and we will cap the year by doing our epic best comics of 2021 episode. And we, we got to do a lot of catch up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we do. So much catch up. So if you have a favorite graphic novel, a favorite kids comic, a favorite single issue, let us know because we need to read it. Okay, Brad, I want to close out this episode because I want to take my new veil for a spin. <laughs> I found one that is Buckaroo Bonsai themed. Oh, what's that watermelon all about? <laughs> Where can our listeners send the words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have some words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at A Cool Hand Fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art and show poster, send them to Karen Charm at Karen underscore X-Men fan. Lisa, where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, Google, and Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to get exclusive, you can join our Patreon, where you'll get more content, including weekly bonus episodes. We just hit our 13, issue 13, in our epic Sandman read-through Dude, I am loving that comic. Neil Gaiman, what a writer. <laughs> uh, if you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast, cbccpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit our website, comicbookcouplescounseling.com. <laughs> dot com. Dot com. Dot com. Or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on Apple Podcasts. And if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive in all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, friends, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. I think I really need to stop using the word epic. I think I said the word epic 12 times on this episode. Somebody needs to come up with a CBCC drinking game. <laughs> no! Where if, uh, if Lisa sings... Or if Brad says the word epic, you take a shot. <laughs> People will die, Lisa. <laughs> oh, don't die.